You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're going to talk about some unusual non-chemical addictions. Uh, But before we go there, there's a couple of housekeeping items to talk about. And the first is that this is Recovery Month. All throughout the month of September, we are celebrating recovery, both recovery from addiction and substance use disorders, as well as recovery from other mental health and psychiatric disorders. If you would like information about what's going on in your state or your area locally, you can go to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, that's SAM. HSA.gov, and they will be very happy to give you calendars, information about substance use disorders, as well as other psychiatric problems, and guide you to local events which you can uh, participate in. So I would encourage you to do that. We also want to share with you a special warning that has just been issued by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. On August 31st, 2016, they issued a new statement regarding a black box warning to be placed um, on all opioid pain medications, all opioid cough medications and all benzodiazepines. There has been a significant increase in the rate of death among people who are using these two medications, the opioid products, both pain medicine and cough medicine, in combination with benzodiazepines. These are medicines that are often given as anti-anxiety medicines. Sometimes in the management of chronic pain, they're also given as muscle relaxers or as sleep aids. These are a very dangerous combination because they both are central nervous system depressants, meaning they cause the respiratory center in your brain to stop working and you basically stop breathing and unfortunately can die. And this has become um, a big problem. We've known for many years, and in fact, this is one of the issues that we have sometimes with our folks that come in for uh, treatment of addiction. There is a a very strong contraindication or warning against the use of buprenorphine products, which we usually use for opiate detox, and the use of benzodiazepines. Now, unfortunately, many of our patients take both of these medications, uh, some of them knowingly prescribed by doctors who are not aware of this drug-drug interaction. But in the case of many of our patients, unfortunately, it's because they are using these medications either recreationally or to self-treat. And so the detoxification becomes much more complex in terms of managing these folks. But I'm very happy that this is going to be a black box warning. I'm very happy that doctors and other prescribers are being educated about this dangerous combination 
wanted to make sure that you, the listening public, if you are on these two classes of medication, first of all, don't panic and stop them. Uh, you will have significant withdrawal. Uh, but be sure and contact your prescriber so that they can talk with you about the best tapering and medication management plan. It's very um, uncomfortable to stop the pain medicine. You'll have a significant opioid withdrawal, which is not fun, but it's very dangerous to stop the benzodiazepines like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin. Um, these medications should not be stopped suddenly, or you are very likely to um, develop se- severe withdrawal symptoms, including the potential of a withdrawal seizure. So please don't stop them, but please do contact your prescriber so that that you can have um, a treatment plan developed to help you be safe in uh, the treatment of your pain or anxiety condition. Huge warnings. I'm, I'm glad that the FDA is finally putting that out there because it's certainly something that we've been dealing with quite a bit in, um, in the treatment facilities. Um, real often it's, it's because doctors patients have been you know doctor seeking and they've gone to a variety of different doctors for pain medications but also it's like you said there are many doctors who just don't realize that the combination is so incredibly dangerous um i was thinking as as you were talking about the the real potential of just stopping it that that there is a likelihood that many people who are in this situation will go to the doctor and find themselves cut off because doctors will respond pretty quickly mm-hmm. in panic with a black box warning, um, especially with the way um, there's doctors have there's been a crackdown on on uh, abusive prescribing over the past few years. So um, just because you've made it through the first few days of benzodiazepine withdrawal doesn't mean that you're out of the danger zone. Uh, I think it's real important that we remind people that the danger zone really starts at about day five or day six, and we've we've had clients who've been in major accidents when they thought they that the worst mm-hmm. was passed. Um, coming off of benzos is very, very serious. And so, again, be very careful, but be very sure that you're all prescribers know all of the medications that you're taking. This happens very frequently. One doctor will add one medicine, and another doctor will add another medicine, and neither know about the other. And this has created some real difficulties. In fact, I was just um, talking um, with a patient about a situation that, unfortunately, she found herself in where she had a serious automobile accident and was referred to a um, orthopedic surgery practice that um, was going to help her manage her um, injuries and some surgery, some physical therapy, and so forth. So she saw one of the specialists who specialized in shoulders and one who specialized in knees and one who specialized in hips. And so she had injuries in all of these places, and the doctor had written a prescription, each one of these doctors, not realizing, even though they're in the same group, not realizing that they were each writing medications. And this patient did not understand, nor was she ever told, that first of all, there's a potential 
um, addiction to these medicines, that there's a drug-drug interaction, that you shouldn't be taking several different classes of opioid medications at the same time, and that there is a significant withdrawal problem if you stop them suddenly. So even in the same practice, you can see, even with the electronic medical record, sometimes things slip through the cracks and Hopefully no one's intentionally doing this, but you can certainly see how patients um, can be prescribed things and, and their doctors not know about their other medicines or their new updated list of medicines, and, and mistakes are made and people are dying, particularly among white women. I actually found that to be the most interesting thing about this new study that was coming out, that um, you hear about all of these different groups that have issues with addiction, um, um, classically mm -hmm. Midwestern white men, Irish men, <laughs> um, but white women usually are not the ones that you're talking about. And, and with this particular warning, um, middle-aged white women, mm -hmm. the, the death rate for middle-aged white women overdosing on opiates and benzo combination has gone up 400% um, since 1999 up to the year 2014. That's a, a massive increase. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the study, you can, you can look at that, that um, it's been posted on our website, that you can look at your own counties. And in, in where our practice is at in Gwinnett County, it's gone up 16% um, with, with the awareness and with them being working on it. It has still been rising. It's, it's really frightening, and we know that um, middle-aged women are more likely to go to the doctor. Middle-aged women are more likely to be prescribed benzodiazepines for their anxiety, their depression, whatever. And as we get older, we're more likely to develop pain conditions. And so this has created a perfect storm where these particular individuals that you don't usually think of as having a problem with drugs or alcohol, and this doesn't mean they have addiction. This, um, although they might, but in general, this is just um, uh, the perfect storm of one doctor giving them a benzo because they're anxious and another doctor giving them an opioid for management of a pain condition and suddenly they're dead. And this is real and it's increasing and there are a number of um, studies showing this and you can certainly go to our website um, atlantahealingcenter.com if you'd like more information or our Facebook page Atlanta Healing Center um, and find out more information about this. But Again, please don't stop your medicines, but do find a way to safely taper one and or both of them so that your risk of overdose and death goes way down. So we're going to talk about some non-chemical addictions. Sometimes they're called behavioral addictions. And um, David, you had some thoughts about some more unusual addictions that people may have been hearing about. So, so when, when you and I first started talking about this discussion, the, the thing that jumped in my mind wasn't the, the behavioral addictions that we often talk about. It was some, some of the more unusual ones. There's, there's actually been a TV show on lately called Strange Addictions, mm -hmm. and, and the, the show's not planning to just recreate Strange Addictions, but I was really curious of some of the things that they were putting on there. Um, and the one that really jumped out at me was, was people who've become addicted to body modification. 
So this is piercings where they have have um, you know twenty different piercings around their ear, and their tongue is pierced several times, and their the back of their neck is pierced, and their nose is pierced, and um, any place and other that body parts that we won't mention on this show are pierced. Um, um, and you know. Do you think about these people who are doing this body modification and, and you pretty much immediately link them into this category of, of radicals and and um, people who are just put, putting them separating themselves from society and not thinking that there's an addictive process that that is furthering that separation that they're they're being having an obsessive drive to go mm-hmm. get yet another piercing or to or or the other the other piece of body modification is tattoos where they have have tattoo from head to toe um not just because they may have loved that first tattoo and the second tattoo and the and, and it was really kind of like a um a statement for them but it's moved to where the drive to get the tattoos mm-hmm. and the the sort of opiate release that they get while mm-hmm. getting the tattoo is, is driving it to, to the point where they're really um, completely marking their bodies. Yes, I'm certainly aware of folks that have spent over $100,000 on tattoos um, and have literally covered their body in all kinds of places. And again, some people have this preference and I, I understand and respect those options, but this compulsion to continue to um, do this and the inability to not do it is um, is part of an addictive process and you often see in this person other addictions and I think that's one of the things, one of the take home messages from today is that Generally, we also see other types of behavioral addictions and or substance use um, addictions uh, in combination. It's rare to see someone that just has one thing. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these unusual addictions. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have with me today David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about non-chemical addictions today because I think there are a lot of behaviors that could certainly be classified as addictions, um, and then there are some other behaviors that get called addictions, but maybe that's not the right term for them. So you brought up this show that um, talked about my my strange addictions. My strange addictions. And some of those things I think um, like the hoarding um, where people can't throw things away, can't um, throw out the mail, the newspapers, the magazines, uh, buy more things than they will ever consume and have to keep those, can't give them away, can't let them go. Some people see this as a, an addiction. Um, more folks see this as um, an obsessive-compulsive disorder or an anxiety disorder. And so sometimes it's a, it's a thin line between is this an addiction. And with some of the other addictions we're going to talk about today, there's a lot of debate about whether or not these are truly addictions involving the dopamine pathway or whether these are anxiety disorders or disorders of impulse control. And I think that with some of them you could see how you could argue a variety of ways. But Yeah, it makes it, um, it, makes it really difficult to really tease that out and, and determine that mm-hmm. answer. Um, a lot of them that they talk about are things that, that actually in the, the diagnostic and statistical manual, we have other names for them and people are, are looking at them in an addictive light, such as hair, hair pulling. Oh, mm-hmm. um, um, you might have to throw out the scientific name. <laughs> Trichotillomania. That <laughs> and is hair pulling. Ice eating and metal eating. Mm-hmm. Um, pica. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, things that, that we've known for a long time psychologically are being driven through mm-hmm. through other processes right. in the brain um, still unusual and still have the psychiatric in nature but, but and can be crippling can really be um, you know psychologically and actually physically impairing um, I think that the discussion with eating disorders real often will have that mm-hmm. that same sort of dynamic because the, you know um, and looking at anorexia versus bulimia versus compulsive overeating mm-hmm. um, is is this something that's being driven because of the dopamine and because there's a um, the shutoff system and the mm-hmm. dopamine's not working or is it being driven by an anxiety disorder that's that's um, causing them to try to have control in this one area and and with that there's not a simple answer we'd like to be able to just easily put them into the right box but there just is not a right box necessarily 
and that it, it's much more complicated to make these diagnoses, especially if you're looking at it from a variety of lenses. If all you treat are anxiety disorders, then you're much more likely to see an eating disorder in an anxiety disorder box. But if you have a a wider lens and you're looking at what is really driving this behavior, then you may um, have a little bit of a difficulty trying to decide which box to put it in. And it's important, not just because people need the right diagnosis, but because it really does differ in terms of how you treat it and what kinds of interventions you may use to treat uh, a food addiction as opposed to a formal eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And is this going to be something that's supportive in helping the recovery process, Mm -hmm. or is this going to be something that creates more secretive behavior and creates more shame Mm -hmm. um, and more power struggles that end up driving a person to a deeper, deeper problem? It's interesting because food has such an important role in our society. We live in a society, fortunately, where food is abundantly available. And we are not, for, for most of us, not to say there isn't poverty and hunger still in America. Sadly, there is. But for most of us, food is something that is part of our social life. It's part of our connecting with other people. It's part of our celebrations of occasions and holidays. It is, in some families, used as a reward Sometimes um, growing up, we'll learn that eating something high in fat or sugar or carbohydrates helps us self-soothe when we are having an emotional difficulty, when we're having hurt feelings or when we're lonely or, or tired. And this behavior, while not unusual, can certainly also get out of hand and that's where we begin to see some of the food addictions or disordered eating. I, I kind of use that as a separator. So eating disorders that are more anxiety and trauma driven versus disordered eating, which in my mind is um, an addiction. I know that's nobody's in nobody's mind but mine, but that's the way I, I separate them. And the difference is the role of dopamine and the difference is the, the time and the place where anxiety and guilt and shame come into play because they can be very different. I think um, part of the disordered eating, part of what we look at with addiction is con- continued use despite serious consequences. Right. And for something like food, the, the serious consequences can be really far down the road mm-hmm. um, um, and, and noticing somebody that they're they're having to buy larger size clothes or that be, they're becoming less physically active it's a, a real subtle process that they are they're they're facing these consequences and, and slowly and slowly really giving away their life um, but we don't see it in that that quick crisis that right. alcohol will create or drug addiction will create you know when you get a DUI there's like a big um, rem- big notice with big blue lights that your drinking has made you cross a line that you're going to have to stop and really put some serious um, 
attention to. But when you're sitting on a couch and you're watching TV and you're just growing, um, people have gotten to a point where they are um, unable to leave that piece of furniture and they become attached to that piece of furniture literally before before their brains are waking up and their people are waking up and saying, hey, we've got to help this situation. Right. Yes, you don't usually get arrested for overeating at the buffet, although there is one comedian who talks about being banned from another a number of buffets, <laughs> buffets uh, because he eats too much there. But you're right. The consequences aren't usually as dramatic. They aren't usually involving the legal system. They're more likely to involve the medical system or just a withdrawal, not just, but a withdrawal from life, a withdrawal from family, a withdrawal from activities. And the problem with all of this is that eating is necessary. We have to eat to live. So as with many of the behavioral addictions, but I think eating is one of the most difficult because you don't have to drink alcohol. You don't have to smoke a cigarette. You don't have to shoot heroin. There's probably very, very few points in your life where someone's going to hold a gun to your head and force you to do those things. But you do every day have to eat. And so we know that patients who have to work in an industry, for example, where they're constantly exposed to their drug of choice, it's really difficult for them. And just the temptation of living normal life can be difficult for folks because, like alcohol, it's pretty ubiquitous. People have it all over the place. But you have to eat food, and that creates a lot of difficulty for people. Well, and and as you were saying earlier, so much of our lives revolve around when we're going to be eating food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even of of most offices that I've worked with, where addiction has been the focus, um, the the food around lunch and the food that's around the offices is still. Um, um, a big part of the day. I mean, mm-hmm. when when we're arriving at the office, there's discussion about, hey, did you bring your lunch today? What are you <laughs> going to have for lunch? And, and that is part of how we connect and how we bond with people. And it's also how we, you know, not only feed our bodies, but also nurture our souls a little bit. Um, and, and that's just a part of, of living life. And for someone who's recovering from an eating disorder, they're going to have to learn how to be able to participate in that to a degree without um, going back into their disease. Exactly. According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, 35% of Americans are obese. We know that in some states it's even higher than that particularly here in the South where we live. We know many of the states um, around us actually have higher rates of obesity than that. But one of the things that's really interesting in a a recent study that was um, published in the Frontiers of Psychiatry is that of people who actually have food addiction, 10% were actually underweight they weighed less than their ideal body weight. 6.3% were of normal weight, 
and 14 percent um, of the responders um, were overweight and met the diagnostic criteria. Over a third of the obese people met the diagnostic criteria. What's interesting too, if you notice, that there were more people that were underweight and had disordered eating than there were people who were normal weight. So we can't always look at someone who has a weight problem and say, oh, you have disordered eating or you have a food addiction. That just isn't always the case. Yeah, it does real often does not show from the outside and, and somebody can really be struggling with it and, mm-hmm. and people around that person might not know in the, know it all. So, again, another way in which this may be a difficult diagnosis. Please stay tuned. We're going to talk more about behavioral addictions. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have David Donaldson with me from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking today about non-chemical or non-substance addictions, and we were talking before the break about food addiction. Now, how do we... How do we differentiate this from other eating disorders? We often see with the food addiction the anticipatory 
excitement. Just as we see with other chemical addictions, we see people anticipating, oh, I'm going to use, I'm going to go meet my dealer, I'm going to stop at the liquor store, and they get a rush of dopamine with that, followed by another rush of dopamine when they actually use the substance. Again, this is early in the in the um, addictive behavior. That is then followed by feelings of shame and guilt and regret afterwards. And people who have disordered eating associated with addiction, they have these same kinds of series of emotional and physiological changes. They have the anticipatory release of dopamine as they think about, oh, I've got this donut in my car. I can't wait to go out there and eat it. Then they get the release of dopamine when they are able to um, actually consume it, and then they have the feelings of regret afterwards. It's very interesting when you work with someone who has anorexia, someone who is refusing to eat. They often have very bad feelings, feelings of inadequacy or anxiety, and then as they resist eating the food, they have the euphoria associated with not eating the food. And they have a feeling of control and satisfaction in in spite of many of them being very uh, hungry. So the, the engaging in the behavior or not eating in that case of the anorectic actually creates the good feeling. They don't have the remorse afterwards. So it's a little bit of a difference in where the body is and where the emotional um, setting is. But there are a number of things to think about if you're um, considering that you might have a problem with food. And one of them is spending a lot of time either obtaining and or consuming or overcoming the use of a lot of food. That's a characteristic of an addiction, that uh, a lot of time is spent in procuring the drug, in this case food, and in consuming it and or recovering from it. From the use. I mean, that's one of the criteria that we use specifically with chemical Mm -hmm. dependency, um, but also with eating disorders. Um, And and the other one that we often talk about, repeat attempts to stop overeating with alcohol and drugs. We'll ask the question, have you been concerned about the amount of of drinking that you do or the amount of using you do? And, And have you ever tried to quit even for just a week or for 30 days as part of looking at their loss of control and and we'll see the exact same pattern when we're looking at any eating disorder um for the for the eating disorder the the binges may have started out with um just having a time where they overate and they felt kind of the fullness in their stomach and they felt a little bit of that dopamine contentment and they felt not so upset about the the parents fighting in the other room or or a breakup of a relationship and and so they were getting a a little bit of a reward from that binge mm-hmm. but when it's moved to the point of addiction the, the they're no longer getting rewards and right. the binge itself is um becoming something that they actually will feel horror about um there's there's many people and typically women that you hear about from who will describe it as um <laughs> 
knowing that they they were going to go through a drive through and they were going to order a, a family's worth of food and they were going to go consume it all by themselves and and so the disease itself is becoming a very isolating experience for them because they know while they're doing it how disordered the experience is and yet and they they're still hide. unable to stop doing mm-hmm. it so the secrets and the hiding, the withdrawal, and the um, pattern of being alone. I think the continued use or misuse of food in spite of consequences. It's not just about the pounds on the scale or that I need to um, be aware of my uh, body size or what's happening to me physically but we see people developing problems with blood sugar and maybe even early diabetes or metabolic syndrome even knowing this they will continue to misuse food because they have an addiction and they actually need formal treatment in order to be able to do this they may be on diets very severe restrictive diets where they deprive themselves maybe even not eating at all and then out of (laughs) in a typical addictive fashion out of celebration oh I lost five pounds I can really eat and then they will go out and binge on high calorie high celebratory celebratory um, use and this is um This is, again, another hallmark of someone who has an addiction. This, uh, I'm going to not do it, I'm going to not do it, I'm white-knuckling it, I'm not, I'm on my diet, I'm, and then, boom, something happens, a stressful situation or a celebratory situation happens, and they feel justified in going ahead and massively overeating the other area that we see a lot with um with eating disorders is the 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 family's efforts to try and control it Mm -hmm. um real often when when they know that 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 a family member has an eating disorder after meals they'll force them to stay at the table and sit and talk to the mom or the dad or the entire family will sit there and consciously say to the person we are staying here for the next two hours because of you um, they'll put locks on all the cabinets and locks on the refrigerator or they won't keep food in the house at all and they'll say to the person we are doing this because we love you and, and what the eating disorder person is hearing is I'm ruining everybody's life mm-hmm. and, and again the addiction is that they can't control it they are still having to compulsively do these behaviors and then like most addictions it goes underground and people do it in secret and they hide it and they find themselves again as you were saying being more and more isolated not just from family but from friends from other people who might be judgmental or whom they don't feel safe revealing how much and when and what they're eating well, and it's so interesting is how often you'll read a, a biography from somebody and you'll hear that this has been a part of their life from from early early adolescence through late adulthood mm-hmm. and it's been just a relationship they've had with their eating disorder um, that that no one else has dealt with. And in, the, in that, you can hear the emotional pain and, and the isolation that they've dealt with. And they don't have to. There is, there is support and there is mm-hmm. um, healing from from these situations. 
Absolutely. There's certainly the National Eating Disorder Association. There are um, Overeaters Anonymous. If you're looking at it from a 12-step recovery program, there are also treatment centers. And sometimes when a person has gotten extremely out of control, they really need a team to address the physical, the psychological, the emotional, and the family impact. All of these different areas of their lives may need to be healed, and that may be something that would require a more formal, higher level of care than a self-help program. Yeah. Really important. Another one that we um, think about quite often and worry about real often is gambling. This is a very interesting addiction. It has finally been accepted in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual published by the American Psychiatric Association. They finally were able to genetically and with neuroimaging studies examine the behaviors around gambling and determine that compulsive gambling is actually an addiction, that it does involve the release of dopamine, and it is a very interesting problem because the financial devastation that this creates for individuals and their families probably where you see the biggest negative impact for these folks. So with disordered eating, we see health consequences. Often with use of other chemicals, we see legal consequences. With gambling, the consequences are financial and significant. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting listening to you talk about that in the sense that communities, when they are preparing to bring gambling into mm-hmm. them, um, actually begin to do these studies and to put aside funds to be able to begin taking care of the the addiction that they know is mm-hmm. going to happen as they're in the midst of bringing them to their their communities. I have a, a good acquaintance friend who um, was a teacher out in Vegas, and and part of um, their training to work with children in Vegas was. Um, um, addic- uh, gambling addiction sensitivity to be able to d- recognize when these children's lives are being impacted by their parents' gambling addiction mm-hmm. and to be able to know how to step in and help when when obviously these kids' needs are becoming um, um, neglected. But the reality that gambling with gambling, you know, you can win a thousand dollars in a in a heartbeat, and you can lose a thousand dollars in a heartbeat, and so you're getting that adrenaline rush and and um, that that chasing the dragon that we always talk about with addiction is completely there. Um, whether you're chasing the high or you're trying to chase the money, you're 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 engaged. In, in this, again, relationship with this compulsive need to keep on playing and playing and playing. Mm-hmm. Um, we also look at it with, with just plain old game, gaming addiction. Yes. Gambling or gaming. And we know that with gaming addiction, people will continue doing this and not drink liquids and not take care of their other bodily needs, and they will die. And not sleep. <laughs> while <laughs> they're in the midst of this compulsive um, addictive behavior. The intermittent reinforcement of gambling is part of what is so addictive. 
if you play a game, for example, if you were playing a card game and every single time you won, that would be great in the first few minutes. But over time, most people find if the game is too easy, it's boring and they stop playing. So gambling offers uh, sometimes I win, sometimes I lose, and I don't know when it's going to happen. And that kind of intermittent reinforcement is what we see is so addictive. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about disordered gambling and how it impacts people and what to do about it. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction. We're talking today about non-chemical or non-substance use Addictions. We've talked a little bit about some unusual ones. We've also talked about food addiction, which can be a separate entity from other disordered eating and we um, or eating disorders. We're also been talking right before the break about gambling, and this has been and continues to be a significant problem. As you were mentioning, David, when states are applying to add a lottery or actual casinos and casino-type gambling within their states when laws are passed, 
almost always there is a provision for education of professionals and also increased resources for treating this problem. It's estimated that 5 million Americans have uh, meet the criteria for gambling disorder, and yet only about 8% of them ever actually um, look for treatment. Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Sheila Bloom, who's at Harvard um, University, did a lot of work on gambling and gambling as an addictive behavior. And one of the things that she developed was the South, South Oaks Gambling Screen. And this is a particular screening device that's used by professionals to help diagnose someone with compulsive gambling. But as with other Addictions, there are some very strong similarities, not just with the release of dopamine with this intermittent reinforcement that sometimes I'm going to win and that's very exciting and sometimes I'm going to lose and that's very frustrating but compels me to go win again. That intermittent reinforcement is very strong. But we know lots of people that can go to Las Vegas or go to casinos and have a certain amount of money that they're going to designate as my gambling recreational money and when it's done it's done and I'm going to go off and see a show or I'm going to go have dinner or I'm going to go to bed Re normal recreational gamblers are able to say stop I've had enough not so with the compulsive gamblers so some of the um some of the characteristics, some of the diagnostic criteria for compulsive gambling include giving up favorite hobbies or other recreational activities that you used to enjoy, just like we see with people with other addictions. They've stopped going to baseball games and they stopped going to movies and stopped doing things that they used to spend a lot of time doing. Opening up new checking accounts and applying for um, new credit cards without any apparent need for cash. Um, in part, this is that anticipatory preparation, getting ready for the next gambling event. And, and another part, it's the beginning to, to organize their life around the gambling and beginning mm -hmm. to hide behaviors and, and hide money and around the gambling. It's really amazing how much money <laughs> these folks can generate for the casinos and for other entities but the reality on the one-on-one -on -one basis is that many times the gambler has to cover their tracks and so it's either by taking out credit cards or loans that their spouse or their parents or their loved ones don't know about to have money to gamble or to pay off debts or to pay off other debts, not gambling debts, but other debts, because they've used the money that should have gone to pay the mortgage to gamble with. And so now they're robbing from Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. They begin having difficulties at work and conflicts in their relationships. Um, um, they have a real diff they begin to experience a real difficult time talking, just like with other addictions. When there's something that's becoming a secret, Small talk becomes dangerous. 
you can't just have small talk about, hey, how how are you feeling today when inside you're feeling horrible and you feel like you've just lost the the family mortgage and, and you've got all this guilt going on. Um, and so there'll be agitation. They'll, they'll have fights that you just don't understand where it came from. And it would be, be again, because the, the person dealing with the gambling addiction just picking a fight to get away from a situation rather than being able to deal with the emotions of it all. The other thing that sometimes happens is in the search for money, in the desperate need that some folks have to either continue gambling or to cover their tracks, so to speak, they may find themselves tempted to do things within the workplace that normally they wouldn't do, such as taking extra money out of the cash box, um, some types of different white-collar crimes are often the, I'm not going to say natural or normal consequence, but it's one of the ways that people who normally would never think of doing that find themselves now engaged in stealing money from their company or embezzling money in order to cover their debt. So it creates a lot of difficulty, not just at home, but can potentially cause problems in the workplace. Well, and, and that's a, an area where these white-collar crimes um, um, doesn't result in you just need to be referred to treatment. This is, you know, and, and for, for alcoholics and drug addicts, real often the message is, okay, we need to get them into treatment, and, and judges will be apt to give them mm-hmm. that opportunity. That's less the case, I believe, with gambling, that when, when they've crossed that line, mm-hmm. they usually are having um, some serious consequences. I think that the idea of tolerance is really interesting, and we saw that a few weeks ago when we were doing the show on sexual addiction, where the behaviors themselves or the pornography that's watched has to get more and more extreme in order to be able to give the person the the rush or the reward that they're looking for. With gambling, the same holds true. They find themselves having to place larger and larger bets or more extreme, more dangerous, more risky kind of betting or gambling or online gaming events are happening for them in order to get the same rush. They have that same tolerance. It takes more to get the same result. And what I used to do just doesn't do it for me anymore. One of the areas also that we see this, we're talking about Vegas and we're talking about um, um, other places where they have casinos, but these exact same dynamics real often happen with the stock market. Yes. And they happen in the futures market, and people will, in particular the futures market, where the, the, the money that they're putting down on this sure thing that they're sure they're going to, um, mm-hmm. by the end of the day, be, be walking out with a million dollars, and, and an hour later they're, they are in a, uh, completely in debt again or in a, in a major mess. And it really is the same dynamic going on inside the brain, that there's that I'm going to win dopamine release, there's the anticipation of, of major gains, and then there's the, the um, reality that happens when those gains don't come through. We see more and more college students and young adults and older adults using online gaming Access where they're they're betting, they're playing online poker, they're um, m- making online bets, 
Some of them are handled in the United States. Some of them are offshore. But we see that's a whole nother level of unfortunate ease and availability. You don't have to get in your car and drive to a casino. You don't have to go down to the um, grocery store and buy a lottery ticket. You can do it at home. And so this often is a way that people are able to keep this more hidden because they aren't having outside behaviors. Everybody thinks they're in working on their work or doing their homework, and yet they're actually involved in in gambling. It's a big, big problem. So that really speaks to a lot of the secrecy that for family members who are living with someone with this, that they'll begin having about their online behaviors. Um, In the the same sense uh, with pornography, that online gamblers will begin erasing their history or putting... um, getting very upset if someone else tries to log on Mm -hmm. to their computer. So you'll begin to see not only secretive behavior in terms of people not telling about money coming and going, but also trying to cover their tracks. With all addictions, we see this secretiveness. We see this social withdrawal. We see withdrawal from uh, normal behaviors that they usually enjoy. So we've talked a lot about addiction. We've talked a lot about um, these more unusual behaviors. Uh, Internet gaming is one that the American Psychiatric Association is um, looking at adding. Certainly food and sexual addictions are very much being studied right now. Compulsive shopping, other kinds of compulsive behaviors can certainly... Um, be seen in combination with regular regular chemical addictions and other behavioral addictions. So if you need some help, if you are interested in learning more about these things, you can certainly go to um, our website at the Atlanta Healing Center. You can look at SAMHSA or NIDA, N-I-D-A dot Gov. These are great sources of information about these problems as well as access to treatment options and self-help groups. So we wish all of you to have a safe and healthy week, and we will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.